it's always a uh, it's always a little unnerving when you get a chance to speak in front of your peers. I've spent a lot of my life working in church and camp ministries, but it's it's different speaking to a group of high schoolers than the people who are your age and tends to make you a little more nervous. So give me just a second here. God, this morning, I just ask that you would center me and quiet me. And God, what I feel that you've been speaking into my mind over the last few weeks, uh, that is something that we all need to hear, that you would just make sure that I don't become the way. And so God, just speak through me. Make this a meaningful time as we look at scripture and we begin to figure out what it is that you're calling us into, what this, what this picture of love looks like that we can live out. So your name we pray. Amen. Uh, well, for those of you that haven't met, I'm Ryan. Um, my last night, my uh, last name is Gernand, and so most of my childhood, uh, people called me Gern, and then because I was a, uh, working in a youth ministry type environments, people called me Gern, and just kind of kept sticking with me. It's kind of who I was for quite a while, and still an identity that still sneaks up on me. Um, I grew up here in Yorktown, so I was a native here. My wife, Kelsey, and I met at the Muncie Applebee's. Uh, that's right. It's a great and wonderful place. Makes, uh, makes lots of good things happen. We fell in love about six days in, and uh, I think it was like about three months in, maybe I finally got the courage to ask her father if I could marry her, and uh, it took me about another four months to actually get the real, real courage to go out and, and ask her. So, uh, yeah, it's one of those things, you know, whenever you know it makes sense, it makes sense, but getting the courage to do the right thing sometimes takes a lot of effort, and yeah, it was scary, but it has been one of the best adventures I can imagine going on. She's everything I don't deserve, but God's grace often is extremely unexpected. We left Muncie uh, in the early 2000s. We eventually moved back here from northern Indiana about eight years ago. Uh, we started calling Common Way our home, and this just became a place that had such an impact on our lives. And yeah, it's been about since about 2017 that we, we, we moved in here and so grateful to get to know all the different people and faces and Matt and all the different pastors and we're sad to see people like Gus go and but we know that this is a place that God is going to be doing great and amazing things. We're doing our best to raise three future adults, Sophie, Oliver, and Libby. They're pretty great kids and from what we can tell, uh, we're apparently the best parents in the world, right? <laughs> Just kidding. Our, our only bar is that they're going to be better than we are, and so I think we're moving in that direction. Uh, some days it feels like not, but some days we're really certain that they are going to be great, great humans. So when I was just 15, I ventured out on my first leadership experience. I was asked to be a camp counselor at a junior high camp. I knew nothing about leading middle school guys and girls. I was barely able to take care of myself, let alone 14 other people, but... I got some great training that made all the difference in the world. I don't know the exact words that they used because at the time I had no idea that what they said would be such a marker in my life. But they said this, be constantly present, never judge. When you don't know the answer, it's okay to just say that you'll learn about that alongside them and most importantly, love them. 
Those words became a mantra in my life. Over the next few years, I began to uh, move towards becoming a youth pastor. I got my calling into ministry uh, there also at camp. And so I became a youth pastor at the age of 18. By the time I was 25, I'd gotten the opportunity to work at the church camp where I'd gotten the opportunity to meet Jesus, where I'd gotten the opportunity to discover my calling into ministry and where, because it just seemed like a great idea, on a hot, sweaty Saturday, asked my wife to marry me. Sometimes things don't always make sense, but it totally makes sense. But so anyways, by the time I was 25, I was working at this church camp, and over the next 16 years, Kelsey and I, we raised our kids there. I got the chance to do ministry in all sorts of capacities. Some days I was digging up septic lines. Some days I was praying with kids. Some days I was developing curriculum, and some days I was climbing up in a ropes course. It was a fun place. But then 2020 hit, and mid-pandemic, we had to make a lot of hard decisions. We worked at a camp that had been in existence for now close to 100 years. I believe next year will be its 100-year marker. And we wanted more than our own security to make sure that that camp existed beyond, beyond 2020. And so the senior managers, we all kind of began to figure out some different strategies, and we all looked at a staffing reduction as the only opportunity we could do next. And so we basically got ourselves fired. We figured that was the best way to make sure that the next 100 years happened was to do that staffing reduction and to remove the, the people who were doing less, just making decisions. <laughs> so that opportunity, Kelsey and I used as something new. We decided to do something off the rails adventurous, and we started up our own business. Uh, so that's what she and I do now. We work together every day, the two of us, willingly, happily. Some people are shocked by this, but it really is an exciting thing, getting to work with someone you love so much. So we do public relations. We do messaging, photography, video work, print, web design. Uh, it's just, it's a, it's a great space to be in. So to go backwards one last time before I kind of get into the next thing, going back to college, I went to Ball State. I was a TCOM student, which is broadcasting and journalism. Uh, there, we were learning how to create videos. Like, that's kind of the best way to describe it. Back then, it was an untapped territory, I think. We were still using VHS tapes, you know, so it was a wild time. You had to do a lot of planning in advance, or else you would find yourself completely lost. But so I was taking this class, and I had a professor named Jim Shasky. He was an amazing, amazing professor. Somebody knows Jim. <laughs> amazing, is that the right word? Special. There we go. So as a, as a young man, I had these dreams of making great films. I wanted to, whether it was, you know, making the next Marvel movie or whether it was some short film that nobody would knew but that would transform the lives of three people, I wanted to do something meaningful. Instead, Jim was teaching us how to create uh, human interest pieces. If you're not familiar, a human interest piece is the segment of the news that usually comes at the very end that everybody turns off. Now, these are the videos that whenever you create them, they will usually set on the shelf until they run out of violence and, uh, you know, gory news, the things that draws our attention. And they're like, we got to fill five minutes, put in this video about the dog. And so those are human interest pieces. And they were having us learn how to create these. And so in all my wisdom and all my bravado, I asked Jim, I said, why are we doing this? We want to do something meaningful. We want to do something important. 
And of course, Jim tells me a great story about an Emmy-winning piece that he had produced that was written, that was filmed, that the story was captured, produced, and sitting on the editor's desk before the 5 o'clock news that he started at lunch. He said, whenever you do these great stories, these pieces, you don't have to have years. You don't have to have billion-dollar budgets. You don't have to have the best stars and the greatest special effects. You need the ability to work with the narrative. And so he was teaching us the meat of how to find something beautiful in the mundane and in the ordinary. And so that was where I fell in love with storytelling. That and also Jesus. Jesus did a lot of helping me fall in love with the way that stories are told. And so that's where I want to begin today. Now, Jesus often taught in parables. These are short metaphorical narratives that he created to focus the listener's attention and to point with specificity to a dimension of the kingdom of God. This is where our lives relate. Listeners to Jesus' words would have quickly been sucked into a plot that he created. They would have considered things from each relatable character's perspectives, and they would have identified with a character's trope on a personal level. Now, once there, that's where we get caught up in the paradigm trap. This is where everything takes off in Jesus' stories. It's underrated just how much shock value exists inside the life of Jesus and inside the stories of Jesus, mostly because there's so much cultural context and meta-significance that we lose in our modern American culture some 2,000 years later. Also, because I tend to keep Jesus' teachings at about an arm's length. Anybody else do that? They can really disrupt our lives if we let Jesus get too close. So we tend to kind of not fully absorb everything that's happening in these stories. So anyways, the shock was important. It wasn't there to keep listeners interested. It was there to cut deep, to dig into our id and to hit our psyche in a way that's going to create change. So he and his stories, they would polarize crowds and turn people instantly towards him and his teachings. Or they would enrage people so much that they were trying to find ways to kill him. While this isn't a parable that I'm about to share, it's an actual encounter, but it perfectly reveals the depth of their hatred. It says, when the teachers of the law brought him a woman, they caught in adultery. Now I want you to read this as whenever they set her up, they manipulated her and they plotted to kill her. When they caught her, they used her, her now imminent death by stoning to attempt to trap Jesus and to bring about his downfall. And it's here that Jesus tells the greatest shock and awe, ten-word story of all time. The teachers are demanding Jesus impose a judgment on this woman. They had caught her in adultery. They brought her up to him. They want him to be the one to say, let's stone her. Let's kill her. They already knew what they were planning to do. They already had the law on their side. They could do all this. So the teachers demand Jesus impose a judgment on this woman. He will not engage. Instead, he bends down and he draws in the dust on the ground. She's sitting there in her own personal torment, waiting for the rocks to begin to strike her body, to strike her head. Now, we have all sorts of guesses, but no definitive idea what he drew in the dust. Might have drawn names. He might have drawn sins. He might have drawn her name. Maybe the word forgiven. 
But the teachers kept demanding an answer. And I'm certain it's not in response to their demands, but he stands up and he grants permission for them to stone her. Now, at this point, she's horrified, right? She's got to be like, seriously? Like, I thought you were here to save me. He gives them permission to stone her. But he says it like this. Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. The shock in all of those words destroy the crowd. All their rage, all their energy, ready to kill this woman, ready to trap Jesus. They were, they were in their element, right? They had it set up. It was perfect. He says 10 words. That's it. Crowd starts dropping their rocks. Everybody disappears. This is the end of it. His shock and his awe. He could have stopped a freight train with the power of those words. He ripped their snakeskin off. He exposed them to themselves. He turned, then he turns and he says to the woman, where are they? Does no one condemn you? Like, it's that tension-breaking joke. And like, those movies that were like, you're so caught up and you're so like, just like tense. And all of a sudden he gets this little joke because he's setting them free. He's setting her free and saying, no one's here to hurt you. No one's here to judge you. Go and sin no more. And he sets her free. Jesus, Jesus was well calibrated. He was a well-honed speaker. He was a master at knowing exactly what needed to say, to be said. So these are his stories. We're going back to the parables. So in his storytelling narratives and in the structure of them, the listener was given a relatable characters. So we would begin to identify with people. Uh, often we would connect with one that we expected to be praised, someone who's going to be heroic, someone who's going to be receiving a blessing of some sort. In the parables, we want to feel good about ourselves. We tend to still like to do that a lot. And that's when Jesus would flip the script. The listener would soon discover a negative, under, a, a negative undertone to the character that we'd begun to identify with. Think about Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. In it, Jesus sets up the audience with the prejudice about the no-good Samaritan who turns out to be the unexpectedly kind and heroic role model. In doing so, Jesus exposes our own prejudices, makes us consider the impact of being cared for and receiving mercy from someone that we despise, from someone that we hate. That's how parables worked. An anti-hero would rise to the service or a weak character would be given a blessing. It's like being thrown into a cold pool where suddenly experience this shock that really hits into our perspectives. It changes us. It reshapes us. If we don't feel some level of conflict when we read Jesus' parables, we may not be humbly engaging the stories. We may be holding his teachings at arm's length, or we may be missing a very significant cultural context in the backstory that speaks in to what we're missing. So as we read through the parable of the prodigal son, which is where we're getting ready to go today, I want you to consider what you might be missing. I want you to consider the things you normally know and the things you normally expect about it, because for a lot of you, this may be very familiar. It begins like this. Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons, and the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, and he set off for the distant country. There he squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. 
So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to feed to his fields to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods and the pigs were eating. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and he was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on and Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field when he came near the house. He heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and he asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf. He is, and he has because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother becomes angry and he refused to go in. So his father went out and he pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. I've never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father says, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. So what stood out? What's being exposed here is bad religion. I think we have a lot of common things that we we tend to be drawn to, but I think there might be something else. Hidden within the uh, the undertones of this story is a lost Hebrew tradition. It was understood by Jesus' listener, which is probably why it's not overtly mentioned in the story. It would have been subtext to them, but it no longer is for us. For me, earlier this year, whenever I first discovered it, had a huge impact on this story that I've known intimately for decades. It's called the Ketzazah Ceremony. It would, have been fami- it would have been understood to be a part of this, and it would have shown up right about here. So he got up and went to his father. That's it, right there. That's where the Ketzazah would have been understood. But while he was still a long way off. Now the Ketzazah, what it is, It was a cutting off. It was an exiling. Whenever an individual has done something so horribly wrong, whenever they have shamed the community, the community is going to permanently separate themselves from them. They don't take those kind of things lightly back then. And so here, what we have... Sorry, I lost my spot. The Ketzazah within the Jewish tradition was a severing of connections, as I said. So cutting off of a family member, cutting off of a community person. It was often used when the individual has done something disgraceful to themselves, and therefore the family would result in exile. 
There's no room for redemption. There's no coming home. And the ritual of the Ketzazah was a public shaming of, sport, of sorts. It was performed with everyone in the community participating and watching. It highlighted their failure. But at the same time, it was also warning others to avoid similar actions. So according to Dr. Ken Bailey, the Ketzazah ceremony utilized clay pots, you know, like, kind of like the, your, your gardening pots. Have you ever broken one of those? They can be pretty sharp, right? So these pots were thrown at the individual's feet. It's a way of saying this path is not yours. Think back to the scene in Home Alone. Whenever Kevin's getting ready to, uh, right next to the Christmas tree, he opens up the window, right, and he scatters all the sharp ornaments. It's as if to say, you're not welcome here. Enter at your own risk. This is going to hurt, right? Because he knows the burglar at this point is shoeless because it's the most disturbing film of all time. <laughs> so let's go back to the story. In Jesus' parable, the son has done something super disgraceful. He's lost the family inheritance in a foreign country. He's now feeding pigs. He's envious of the pig's food. Everything about these pig references are telling us that he is doing everything at failing his Jewish heritage. Not even his master feels he's worthy of any compassion to share the pig's food. To everyone listening, this is a super shameful, useless waste of a human. He's a bad person. And he decides he's going to try and go home. Now put yourself in the mindset of the listeners. They know that the Ketzazah is about to happen. He's practicing and rehearsing his I'm sorry speech. And the listeners would have been smiling and wringing their hands. Like, this is going to be good. This is going to hurt. He's going to feel the most public shame of anybody Ever. They know how the rabbis told and taught their stories. They knew what was about to happen. It's kind of like what happens on Facebook in the comment feed whenever somebody does something really dumb and everybody in the community gets to be a part of your little viral infamy. The dehumanizing words that we use, for some reason, we tend to want to go there. The listeners for Jesus here, they wanted his shame to be publicly painful. But instead, the kingdom of God is so far from the hearts of men, and Jesus flips the script. It says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. It wouldn't be perceived as luck or coincidence seeing him a long way off. The father would have had to have been standing there. It would have been understood that he was watching for him that he was searching, that he was scanning the horizon every day, looking. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and he was filled with compassion for him and he ran to his son. Middle-aged men in that culture did not run. They did not. He would have had to lift his robe to run. It's shameful for a man of his age to show his bare legs. The transition in this story would have been dizzying to the listeners. Unexpected, illogical, foreign. Everything about this father's actions is insane. What reason would he do to take on welcoming such a worthless son? But the visual for the listener here, this chaos, they would have even imagined like an imaginary crowd being drawn to the scene of this father running this imaginary crowd that would have performed the Ketzazah, cutting him off. 
But it says he ran to his son, he threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. And the father then says, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. He threw his arms around him and he kissed him. The father welcomed him back home. The robe and the ring were put on him. The father restored his place in the family. And the sandals on the feet, what's the father doing? He's saying, it doesn't matter if you want to perform the ketzazah. You can throw crap at his feet. He's got shoes on now. He's taking away their ability to hurt him, to shame him, to exile him. All of this is if to say he has been redeemed, not by his actions, but by mine. He is worthy because he is mine. That is the good father. That is the kingdom of God. But the kingdom of God can be so far from the hearts of men. A friend shared this story with me a few years ago. A young man in a highly evangelical conservative area. He sat his family down one afternoon to have a hard conversation as he came out to them. A stressful, a trying, and a difficult conversation, no doubt. After the son spoke, the father rose from the table. He went to the kitchen sink, and from the cupboard there, he removed a ball jar. Quietly, he left the house. He returns a few moments later, screwing a lid onto the jar, which is now filled with dirt from the family farm. He sets it down in front of his son. He said, this is your inheritance. This is the last thing you'll ever get from me. Regardless of your views and your beliefs, I think we can all agree that this is not in line with the teachings of Jesus. This is not the reactions that Jesus wants us to love one another with. This is not leading towards restoration and redemption. The dichotomy of the two fathers is palpable and nothing could be any more dissimilar than these two fathers. So the true meaning of different parables has often been debated. Is there just one point in timeless truth or is there an infinite amount of allegorical interpretations? I do know this much. It's easy to see that Jesus taught and engaged people with extreme specificity. There was an intended outcome for those who would receive his words. There are two traditionally main characters in this parable, the parable of the prodigal son. But I don't believe we're limited to just identifying as one of the two sons. Perhaps you might relate to the crowd. Perhaps you might relate to the father. I believe that is the aspirational goal that we're intended to be invited into. For Matthew 5.48, Jesus says, in a word, what I'm saying is grow up. Your kingdom subjects now live like it. Live out your God-created identity. Live generously and graciously towards others the way God lives towards you. Now, it's the message translation, and he can be a bit expansive, and I love it. The NIV puts it so simply. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The word Matthew uses that's translated as perfect is telos. It means fulfilled and complete, fully functioning or finished. It describes an accomplished purpose or intent. 
So as we move through phases of our spiritual growth, we're moving towards fully functioning. When we hear the words, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, be fully functional, (laughs) be complete, live as your God is complete. God loves us with a perfect love. We're not just meant to receive it, but to be fulfilled in it. I believe that God is calling us to a deeper level of unconditional love than what we see as standard and common in our current culture. Think about, think about the dirt, Dad. Think about the way that sometimes we see people behave on social media. Is that the complete love that God is inviting us to? God's perfect love would not shame. God's perfect love restores and redeems. God's perfect love preempts. Right now, it's easy to look and say, things seem a little broken in our world. I think that's, that's fairly obvious to most of us. I can't fix everything. I can't love everyone well enough to make this work. Even if I wanted to, I don't have that power and that capacity. Anybody here? Can I be a father figure of the prodigal son? Even to everyone just in this room, and you probably would be the easiest people to try to say, if I was going to try to do a crowd, this would be a pretty easy place to start. Right? Now imagine taking it to whatever, take a high school, Take a middle school, that would be rougher. <laughs> a college campus, take it, to, take it to your workplace, that could be trying, right? Can you express extreme unconditional love to the person who is stealing your lunch every day, who is manipulating the reports that you turn in, taking credit for your work? Can you show extreme unconditional love the way the father figure does? I don't know if the answer is yes. It might be. I believe with God's good grace, we could all be led to that point. But I think about the specificity with which Jesus interacted. Jesus didn't walk around sprinkling fairy dust that healed people. He didn't walk around sprinkling fairy dust that generally loved people. He walked around with extreme specific interactions. He was walking through a crowd and a woman touched his robe and she was healed. Power went out from him and it healed her. Now, everybody else bumped him in that crowd. Not everybody else was healed. Jesus, with extreme specificity, healed this woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. And from there, he went and he raised from the dead a girl who had been dead. That's obvious. (laughs) He raised this girl, this young girl from the dead, but not everybody else who had died. There was a specific reason for the way that he healed. There was a specific reason for the people that he forgave intentionally, that he loved intentionally. And I think that part of the calling is not just to be kind generally, because I think that's a good thing, and I think that we are called to that, but I think more importantly, the calling that Jesus has for us and what this parable tells me is that there are some very specific people that I'm supposed to love 
absolutely unconditionally. I can't do that for all of you. I'm sorry. I'm not that good. But I can do that for right now for very specific people in my life. I can give them 100% of everything when it comes to forgiveness. And that means I'm going to have to put my own feelings and my own comfort. I'm going to have to sacrifice a lot of things. And I'm going to have to be willing to be wrong a lot, even though I'm actually right. You know what I mean. (laughs) I'm going to have to be willing to show grace. I'm going to have to be willing to forgive things that, oh, how many times have we said that? How many times have we had this discussion? God's inviting you to change their lives by revealing what a complete love looks like. Because if you don't show it to them, who will? Because the guy who's stealing your, your, your lunch, who's taking credit for all your work, yeah, you may not be called to, but somebody somewhere is. Maybe it's their family. Maybe it's a friendship. When I was in my 20s, I did not have this circle of four people, just Kelsey there. And then I had some other friends, people that I was able to build into. And I can also tell you that there were at least two people, if not more, that I failed to be a complete individual for, that I failed to love the way that they needed to be loved. And I still carry the pain of those failures. In my 50s, my circle will probably get a little bit smaller as some of the tiny humans move out of my house. And in that time, as my space opens up, my relational circles of significant people, I hope that I begin to do better than I did in my 20s. Who are your significant relationships? I want you to close your eyes for a moment. I want you to picture that person or those people. Maybe it's one, maybe it's three. I want you to picture them right in front of you, close enough you can see their eyes well. Lean in just a little bit more to them. Really see them. Imagine them laughing. Imagine them loving you. Imagine them crying and hurting. See them as a soft little child. But imagine them yelling at you. They are still a child of God even when they lash out. They are still your beloved. Open your eyes back up. This illustration... Sometimes it's jarring to think about it like that, right? To, to imagine them so, so gently and tenderly and then one second later they're yelling at you. How is that any different from the way that our lives and relationships work? They are often messy. They are often filled with love one moment and frustration and pain the second. This would be a great moment for me to share a story of my own failures, A story to illustrate how my wife, loving through her completeness, has time and time again moved my shame and my regret alongside her hurt and her agony to redemption and relational healing. 
She is eternally gracious with me, and I am so thankful. I am so thankful that the spirit of this story says, I don't have to tell you my failures, and you don't have to tell me yours. Because God, the way that the father figure sets this up, he ran out while we were still a long way off. And he preempted the crowd from being able to do what they wanted to do, from getting able to truly ruin us. He took the spirit of the Ketzazah away. He shooed us. That's an amazing thing. Author Timothy Paul Jones shares in his proof, in his book Proof, a story that so perfectly sums this up. He says, our middle daughter had been previously adopted by another family. I'm sure this couple had the best of intentions, but they never quite integrated the adopted child into their own family. They had biological children. After a couple of rough years, they dissolved the adoption and we ended up welcoming an eight-year-old girl into our home for one reason or another. Whenever our daughter's previous family vacationed at Disney World, they took their biological children with them, but not her. They left her with a family friend. Usually, at least in the child's mind, this happened because she did something wrong that precluded her presence in the trip. So I made plans to take her to Disney World the next time a speaking engagement took our family to the southeastern U.S. In the months leading up to our trip to the Magic Kingdom, she stole food when a simple request would have gained her a snack, and in the days the calendar moved closer to the trip, her mutinies multiplied. A couple of days before our family headed to Florida, I pulled our daughter into my lap to talk with her about her latest escapade. I know what you're going to do, she stated flatly. You're not going to take me to Disney World, are you? In retrospect, I'm, I'm embarrassed to admit that in that moment I was tempted to turn her fear to my own advantage. The easiest response would have been, yeah, if you don't start behaving better, you're right, we won't take you. But by God's grace, he says I didn't. And instead, he says, I asked her, is this trip something we're doing as a family? She nodded her brown eyes, wide and tear-rimmed. Are you a part of this family? She nodded again. Then you're going with us, he said. You are part of this family, and we are not leaving you behind. So they headed to Disney World on the day they had promised, and it was a typical Disney day. And in their hotel room that evening, she was exhausted. She was pensive and a little bit weepy at times. When bedtime rolled around, he says, I prayed with her, and I held her hand, and I asked her, how was your first day at Disney? She closed her eyes. She snuggled down into her stuffed unicorn. And after a few moments, she opened her eyes ever so slightly. Daddy, she says, I finally got to go to Disney World. But it wasn't because I was good. It's because I'm yours. We each have people in our life who don't know that they are ours. I believe if there's anything we can take away from this message today, I want you to let them know that they are yours. You can restore them. You can redeem them. You can love them completely and fully. And you may not always be perfect, but you can still be complete. You can still move your actions and your intentions towards that with honesty and humility even whenever we can't live up to it, we can seek restoration in that relationship. Instead of saying transactionally, because you are mean to me, I'm going to be mean back to you, you're too important. Because no one else in this world 
is going to do it if I don't. Who's your circle of significant relationships? I hope you have them in your mind, and I hope that as you walk out of here today, you begin to think of an action step that you're going to be able to do to start moving forward in that relationship. I'm not telling you to love the world less. Do keep loving generally, be kind. But I think Jesus wants you to love specifically more than you've ever imagined. I think he wants you to be willing to break down everything sacrificially, be willing to give up everything for just a handful of people, to be as generous as God the Father, to be as graceful as Jesus Christ. Picture those people in your mind once again. Let's close our eyes and stand at the same time. That's going to be a tricky one. Once you stand, then I want you to picture those people in your mind. Because I want this prayer to be on our hearts as we close. Abba, Father, may we find comfort and restoration in your grace and your love in our lives. May it wrap us as an embrace. May it transform us through your love and teach us how to love with specificity the individuals in our mind. And God, right now, we hold those people up. Show us how to love them and how to live our lives and to be more like you. God, grant us the patience and the mercy and the humility to become fully complete in your love. Amen.